This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All right, Eric, we can treat this as a fourth quarter recap and somewhat as an annual recap, but I want to make sure that we really captured the events of the fourth quarter because it is one that will stand out in history. And the numbers themselves don't tell much of a story. Bitcoin was down 15%. ETH was down 10%. The equity market was actually up 5%. But the fall of FTX is what everyone will remember. So maybe we can just start there. As you've had some time to digest everything that's happened, what's been your reaction to the fallout in the market in the fourth quarter? The numbers do say something that I think surprises me. As we get into it and we go through the FTX saga and everything horrible that happened, those numbers don't match how bad it was. And I think that's actually been an interesting area of strength for the asset class in a sea of wreckage and fraud and deception and lies and all these horrible things, people losing money. I believe that the main assets, Bitcoin and ETH, have held up remarkably well in spite of all that, which I think we can get to later when it comes to what's the underlying system versus some of the players inside of it. So looking at the FTX scenario, as I've tried to review it and think back on it as how well-regarded Sam Bankman-Fried was held inside the traditional finance community, the crypto community, to the president of the United States and Congress, it's quite remarkable and will lead to many movies and books for years to come. I think the reason why his pitch and narrative were so intoxicating, and now we're finding out was built on a house of lies, was that anyone who's worked in traditional finance, myself included, anyone who's actually built something or been really close to how systems work, understand how archaic and crazy underlying systems are. Totally random example, but like Southwest going down, the Sabre system, if you ever read about it, we should add that to a business breakdowns if we haven't done that one. You're talking about early space age level coding mainframe system that then built this routing map that just completely fell down on itself. There are people that have maintained that at companies that have been with those firms for 30 years who know how dangerous that is. Modern finance has a lot of mainframes and a lot of AS400s and IBM systems sitting all over the place that people rely on for years and years and years because of the fear of if we unplug this wire, what the hell could happen? When people talk about crypto rails and what that could do for modern finance, it's a very exciting topic that you know there are much better ways to do things. You could settle, you could match. And it's something that I realized as I talked to other people, it's such a weird thing that we know because we've existed in both worlds and me more than others, that most people don't see that perspective. I've worked with people on Jane Street. I've traded with Jane Street. I've been to Jane Street several times. 
some of the smartest people on the planet. You're talking about recruiting people sophomore year. When I was at Fidelity, sophomore year of college, the top math students on the planet to come work there, you go to their trading floor, everyone just looks like exactly the prototypical super genius person you'd think making money if people knew they'd fall out of their chairs. So the Jane Street system designer coming to crypto, building the next level exchange, I think everyone was wrapped up in, yeah, this is a huge problem. There's a lot of things to solve. And this thing is growing at such a rapid clip. And his posturing as the US version of what could happen, there was just a lot of things that people rallied around and believed in. And there was a lot of faith and hope that Sam was going to be this leader for people. And it's a problem that happens time and time again. I talked to an old timer on Wall Street, doesn't know anything about crypto, thinks all of it's crazy town. He's like, I just see it. Some mathematician shows up and says, we're going to solve this innovation. And you're too stupid. Just get in and catch up. It's just like a tale as old as time. But I think there was a lot of promising things that people wanted to see come to fruition. And Sam was had an immense amount of power, both political, capital, network. It was quite insane. So he was pushing that. So I think that that just rocked a lot of people to their core. I think that it gave a lot of the haters and the doubters their moment to say, see, I told you this was all a scam. I think that's an over exaggeration of the problem, but they have every right to say it because they were calling for warning signs and some people were calling Sam out. There are people in the crypto community that hated Sam. And that was always pushed aside as jealousy or envy or you're not doing anything. And now, as my best read of it, mostly I think the best source has been the bankruptcy proceedings. I think Sam on Twitter and Sam, the public persona, I had wrote that when this first went down, I think I had three things that I saw happen. One is that you have incompetence. A mistake happens and no one actually knows. Everyone's just really, really dumb. I didn't think it was that. The second one, I thought, and I've seen this happen many times, I know you have too, is a trader makes an error. Nobody notices. It exists and they try to trade out of it. It's the most dangerous thing that happens. I've been on a trading floor where people were picked up and walked out for this behavior of not raising their hand and saying, I made a mistake. And they're in a hole and they know it, but they desperately try to get out of it. That's what I thought it was. And then the third is just a complete sociopath that's willing to lie to people. And I didn't think that's what it was, that this fraud was being perpetrated from the beginning. My first read was that they were making a lot of money and then they lost a lot of money and they were brazen in their ego to think they could make it all back if they just had some more time. So the fraud began perpetrating, covering up the hole. The deeper this story goes and the more threads that are pulled, and this is something I'm still scratching my head on, is how they weren't making more money. They had so many advantages in a trading system that I'm starting to question one in three. If it's a sociopath, that made some horrible trading mistakes because I don't know how they weren't making more money based on all of the incredible advantages they had structured that had been basically regulated away in traditional finance. I mean, we used to have prop desks that would trade against clients. And then people said, stop it. That's not okay. So you had a prop desk. You own the exchange. You had an order book. It's remarkable that you didn't make money in some ways or that you pushed it so far. So there's still a lot of open questions, but I'd say right now, the best source of information and learning has been from those bankruptcy proceedings and people digging through them. And over time, we'll get the real story. I don't think it's going to be in a Michael Lewis book. I think I'll love that book, but that's not where you're going to find it. Yeah, it certainly makes sense where there'd be this initial form of trust, especially from traditional finance for someone who has the Jane Street background, which is for those who aren't familiar with Jane Street, 
a quant fund that trades in all asset classes is really not linked very much to crypto. And maybe it is now, but at least in all of my time in finance was just thought of as a really advanced quant fund. And you look at someone like Jeff Bezos, who came from T.E. Shaw, very similar story, quant fund. And that pedigree is something where at least allows you to, in your own mind, say, okay, they check this box, education check this box. It's not somebody without some type of impressive background. But those people can also be the ones that use that to their advantage and pull one over your head. We've now seen over several quarters, all of the heroes, or at least the loud heroes of the industry continue to fall, and it's been a domino effect. How important do you think it is that there are well-regarded figureheads in the industry because they are getting harder and harder to find? It's an interesting one. I don't know how important it is or isn't. I think an industry's technology has its heroes, but like if Steve Jobs didn't exist or if people didn't exist, would technology eventually find its way through to the end consumer? Would innovation find a home? To your point, there's loud heroes, there's unsung heroes. The biggest problem has actually been with having such a big personality and it being such a salacious story, it's dominating headlines. So I wonder how well-known Sam Bankman fried or Barry Silbert was or the Winklevoss twins or Sue Zhu or Justin Sun. Like In crypto, they're known, and they're known as big personalities with huge amounts of money and power. It's actually because that they got into so much trouble that now they're becoming a household name. Same thing. Bernie Madoff built a tremendous part of finance. He was on, I think, the board of NASDAQ. I forget which regulator he was on or which exchange he was on. He created a bunch of different securities that had never been created before. If you weren't in Wall Street, you didn't know who Bernie Madoff was, but then you definitely knew who Bernie Madoff was. And now everyone knows who it was. I'm sure the same thing was true for Charles Ponzi. So it's the infamy that people will remember of when people do horrible things. The good part is to look at this and say, look, what was the problem here? The hero worship, the unabashed questioning of letting someone push that far. But does the industry need it? I mean, the industry has always needed a cleansing of bad actors. It's a fast growing market where there's a lot of money flying around and it needs to take this type of behavior out. To me, it's a healthy burden the forest down and start rebuilding with a healthier infrastructure and remind people that now you have an example of the next time there is the next, it's not going to be a Jane Street trader building an exchange. It's going to be something else. There'll be a bit of a reminder of, is this another SPF moment? So I don't consider it important. It's obviously a huge albatross on the industry's neck that they're going to have to deal with because the headlines, if you were interested in the underlying technology or the asset class or any parts of it that I believe are good and worthwhile. And your first headline is that all your money is going to be stolen by this guy and everyone's upset. That's not exactly going to be a good entry point. And it might be recency bias, but it feels like that cleansing you were referencing, cleansing of the bad actors feels particularly extreme in this market. There were many bad actors. So when people say to you, I think blockchain is an interesting technology but I can't trust the people in the system. How do you respond to that? I love this question and I get it a lot. I think about the origin of Bitcoin in this instance of in the traditional finance when it comes down to trust. When we've had crises, outside forces step in to try to stop it in some way. And anytime you step in in the natural order of things, whoever is stepping in decides who wins, who loses, who gets hurt the most, who gets benefited. If you look back, the Federal Reserve, I think, was started in 1913, and it came from the financial crisis of 1907, that people wanted a monetary authority to step in and try to alleviate financial crises. What ends up happening, if we just look at traditional finance for a second, 
is that every time there's a crisis, the outside forces gain and expand their power. So after the Great Depression, after the financial crisis, during COVID, the government and monetary authorities through the U.S. Treasury, the Federal Reserve, Congress, giving them these rights, expands their power in an attempt to try to make the next crisis less. And there's an interesting question there of the intervention idea. So in the financial crisis, banks, broker-dealers, financial services companies, all came together in a way that caused one of the greatest crashes through opaque leverage and ability to maneuver through regulations or lack of regulatory oversight to create a massive crash that almost took down the entire financial system. And I say almost because eventually Congress and the Federal Reserve decided to expand their power and step in and do something. Back then, when I was at the center of it, I thought, wow, this is the closest I've been to the Great Depression or horrible other economic crises that have happened. And if we don't do anything, chaos could break out. If people knew what we knew back then, that they might wake up and go to their bank account and not get it, I'm not sure what would happen. They have a belief, a trust this should work, even though there's no math that can prove it, that they can get their money out tomorrow. Yeah, there's that great scene in the big short where he's on the cell phone just saying, nobody knows what's going on. Nobody understands it. And it really rings true with that moment. Yeah. And so I had that visceral reaction. I took out as much money, it wasn't a lot that I could get out of an ATM. And I told my parents to, and I've never been worried about this type of stuff, but I was worried about what was going to happen, that people didn't understand that once Lehman fell, that then Merrill would fall. And once Merrill fell, Goldman would fall. And once Goldman fell, Citi would fall. And once Citi would fall, JP Morgan would fall. And the only reason we thought JP Morgan had to exist is because we found out they're the banker for the United States government to continue issuing treasuries. You're so down the chaos rabbit hole when you're figuring out who issues treasuries, not who buys them, who issues them, that you're like, oh my God, there's not going to be a bank. There's not going to be a money market fund. Cash, liquid cash that's stored on a computer somewhere in a database is not going to work. So I was a believer at the time of the people that don't understand that the Federal Reserve has to step in because of how big the problem was. But then what ends up occurring is in the moment, they save a bunch of institutions. So you let Lehman die. You sell Bear Stearns off for scraps. All those other banks and financial services companies that were part of this all get to live. And not only get to live, they get to rewrite regulation to protect anyone from coming into their competitive mode. When the Bitcoin paper was written, and I was going back to like, there's a great website that has like Satoshi's original emails and quotes. I think it's called the Nakamoto Institute. And it just talks about that the Federal Reserve's power and the Treasury to debase currency over time. When governments give that power, it gets abused. So the genesis of Bitcoin was kind of this unfairness that the intervention leads to. You have this idea of what would a cryptocurrency that was in a peer-to-peer system, would that work? In some of those early commentaries, people talked about the government cutting off the head of any of these projects that we had tried digital coins in the 90s. And the Satoshi response is, yeah, but peer-to-peer networks seem to be unstoppable. So yeah, you can shut down Napster, but can you shut down a peer-to-peer network that doesn't have a central head? What if there's no head to cut off? Which is an interesting concept. And this is where I think words are so important, this idea of trustless. I just talked about this this morning. The more I thought about this, a system, by definition, can't be trustless, 100% trustless. Someone has to design the system, but that it seems like code, cryptography, peer-to-peer networks have the best chance of lowering the trust, having the least amount of trust necessary. It will never be trustless, but that will have the least amount of trust in the system. That belief is true at the financial crisis. It was true five years ago. It's true today. 
And that's where it gets to the price movements that I find interesting. Of Bitcoin doesn't know who SBF is, and Bitcoin doesn't care, and Ethereum doesn't know who these actors are or what's going on in the world. It's a thing that exists out in the world, a piece of software that's running that can't be stopped. So to me, it makes you check your core views, which is a good thing of like, what are you doing here and why are you interested? So I have a lot of reasons why I'm interested in crypto we can get into of areas that I think are going to lead to tremendous unlocks of value. And that didn't change. What changed is probably the timeline for other people to take the risk to go explore that. And that's the sad part. Yeah, there's something, I don't know if ironic's the right term, but there's something noteworthy about the original Bitcoin paper being written by somebody who is still anonymous today. And much of the fallout that's happened over the past year has been related to individuals who had very polarizing personalities or very loud. So there's certainly something there. I guess back on that point on the fallout, you are certainly coming at this with a mature or grounded view in terms of separating the bad actors from the technology and the potential. But I'm sure many others can't or aren't willing to step out and put themselves into something like this because there is a public perception now. I think it's incredibly difficult to talk about this with any type of nuance. The views are just so incredibly strong. You referenced there that it's going to impact how people build. How much have you seen that impact just in terms of your day-to-day conversation? And what do you feel like that washout is really going to look like over the next year? It's very hard to say what it'll look like over the next five years, but really over the next year. We're in a weird place as a society of how tribally we attach to our viewpoints. And I think maturity, I appreciate that comment, but of the objective view of it. But like the maturity part is that good people do bad things and bad people do good things. And smart people can lose a lot of money and dumb people can make a lot. And the world's an unfair place. Those I believe strongly in. I see a lot of young crypto wealth that I talk to that even still are tremendously wealthy, but before or even more. And they're in their 20s, maybe early 30s. They have a lot of money. They have an existential crisis because they haven't seen what other people might have seen. And I hate to say like, oh, experience or sound like a boomer or something. But one of the greatest parts about being in the investment game, which is a weird place to be, it's untethered from society in a lot of ways, kind of similar to crypto, in my opinion, is you see brilliant people get carted out. They're well-read, they have a good heart, they work with the highest level of integrity, and they just, the markets and them just don't mix. And then you see absolute morons, people that don't deserve to be in the seats that they're in, that got in for all archaic reasons, make generational fortunes. And when I was younger, I was angry about it because I was like, this isn't what I thought. I thought that the smartest people made the most money and that the reason why you push to become a PM someday or join one of these firms was to join this elite force of intellectual geniuses that were trying so hard every day to figure out truth, to just get a little bit closer to truth. And you're like, oh man, that was a hard lesson in my early 20s. And for the people that made money really easily in crypto, they don't have that same context of like how to think about it. So I think for the people that throw the extremes on anything in both ways, In an up market, what you need to be reminded of is that crypto is not going to cure cancer and is not the holy grail of life and that with this, we'll have peace on earth and solve all the problems of humanity. The same thing's true when it's in the middle of a crisis that this is all a waste and it's all going to zero and it was just a passing fad. That's not true either. The objective thing, the reckoning. So if you remember when I first started talking about would I leave 
the extremely stable and privileged life I had to go into this crazy frontier. What I was struck by of my life of growing up was that in college, I really wanted to go and work in Silicon Valley. But it was after the crash and everyone told me not to. And they said, it's hocus pocus. You can need to become an investment banker or a consultant. Those are the jobs that you need to go get. And then maybe if you do those, you can get into investment management someday. Like that was the path you were supposed to take. So I did that. And what I regretted in hindsight, I mean, I'm happy I had my career because I was always trying to get closer to the founders, to the builders, the people that actually were creating and wanted to think about a system from the ground up of could it be different or could it be better? I didn't do it then. And so I said, the reason why I wanted to get deeper into crypto, which is true to this day, is that I really want to understand the differences between the pets.com and the Googles. The SBF thing, I wasn't an early person to call it. I wasn't like, oh my God, this guy's bad and whatnot. So you may miss the big frauds, but there's lots of things that you were able to avoid. My experience in crypto financially has been very good for me and my family. And there are things that are consistent from traditional management, which is reading stuff, understanding what's going on, knowing the difference between this and that. When you're on the outside, you've got no way to do it. It was always going to be this new lingo and archaic place for people. So that timeline of what's happening, I think the washout is nice because I want to build things. And when you're in a phase of you can build anything and people will throw money at you, it's just weird. The problem is just becoming the most insane, sexy pitch to get the most money from a VC. There's nothing to that to me. That's not sustainable. But if you're actually working on a problem where you're like, this is a problem, that's what gets me out of bed, that I want to go solve this thing. In a washout, the only people left are crazy people like me that really want to solve a problem because they want to solve a problem before and they want to solve a problem now, but now the noise gets dropped down. So the scammers and fraudsters, that is a human trait. It's not a crypto thing. It's just the next thing that will happen and people will come and go. So that's, to me, a naive viewpoint of it, of that throw it all away. So the builders, it's an easier time to talk to people. If you're serious, your phone call gets picked up. There's no fighting to the front of the line. There's no, your idea isn't big enough. It's not crazy enough. You're not burning enough money. Originally, it was kind of boring because it's like, wait, you want to generate cash flow? I'm like, yeah, that's the point. Like, you're not thinking big enough. And now it's like, hey, 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 remember that cash flow thing you talked to me about? What was that thing you were thinking about? Amazing how times change. No, your point on the market experience, I even had somebody on the glorious platform of Twitter last night call me out for being fake humble when I made a comment about sitting atop the Dunning-Kruger curve. And it's tough to reply to anybody that calls you fake humble. There's no way to defend a humbleness. But what I wanted to say was, if you spend any amount of time in the public markets, you learn very quickly, you can't have irrational confidence about these opinions. You can't have these insanely strong opinions because there's a scoreboard every day. And any given day, somebody could point out how wrong you are. So you at least build up some thoughtfulness around what you're saying. And polarizing views might help you short term, but rarely do they help you in the long term. And that's why you just historically haven't seen many public managers making appearances on various podcasts or whatever it might be. I think that's why you see a lot of private investors are the ones that show up. It's a lot harder to track the scoreboard. Now, at the same time, we've both talked about the irrational confidence that is sometimes needed with founders to build big things. And a little bit of ignorance can sometimes actually be helpful and a willingness to just push that view. Do you think there's much of a shakeout or an impact in terms of how much the industry can advance where that type of 
behavior has really killed, I think, at least for the time being. How much of a role does that play where those type of personalities certainly are going to be viewed with much, much more scrutiny than where they were over the past two years? I think that's an issue of VCs and startups in general that everyone's dealing with right now, the audaciousness and how far people push it into what extreme and do you actually have to figure out a company that can be self-sustaining? I see both sides of it, of the desire to say, we need to have a system that pushes. I mean, I think it's what makes America such a great country that we have bankruptcy laws. And people tell me that like, oh, what's one of the things you love about the country that you can try, fail, file for bankruptcy and wake up the next morning and not start in debtor's prison. And that we hold people in regard that do create innovations and progress, that we value them and we give them a lot of status in our society, that that person went off and had an impact. And so I think the desire to do things and the impact and change is there maybe now more so than ever because there's a discontent with working for a corporation. There's so much stuff we get into, but there's a weird behavior of people trying to work as little as possible now for companies and just play this game of like, how much can I get paid? And there's a high self-selection bias of wanting to go start your own company or take on a thing like that. And you attract other people. That's the part that's the most enthralling and exciting is that you start to attract another network of people you just want to be around and you want to do things with. I don't think any of that will go away. And I think the funding mechanisms do. Michael Malbosen had a great talk about this, about I forgot what he calls, I think he gave me the book or the paper. It's like this curve where basically you have there's an idea and people are excited about it and the money starts to chase it and you have all this insane development. And during that up curve, which is the end of the boom, what's great about it is some wild ideas that would never get fun and get into that mix. 90% of them are really bad and go to zero, but some stuff that would never have that audaciousness. And then when you're on the downside, then it's really hard to get funding. So you go through this lull period and it comes back that eventually someone finds something through all of the adversity gets product market fit, and then the money starts to chase, and then the cycle starts up again. So I definitely think that in business cycles and investment cycles, venture capital cycles are the same thing. If you come in and say that you need to burn $500 million a month to change how people are going to drink green juice or something, that's probably not going to work. But that there's still a lot of money, and there's less people in that pipeline now that are pitching to do anything great. So then there's the opposite take of it is that a VC isn't going to keep charging management fees to just be a conservative actor. They still have to take risk and make bets. So I think it will find its place. It's like any market recorrecting. It was overly hot across everything, across public growth stocks, across private valuations, across crypto. So you're going through a risk-off phase. And then as soon as the market turns and there's risk opportunity, it will probably start to move the other way. Yeah, your point on cycles and what gets funded has really been hammered home a few times, I think, over the past 20 years, and particularly with oil in the US. And I think it's one of those things that gets lost over. But we could have been in a massive energy crisis had we not developed shale basically between 2005 and 2015. And a ton of investor money was just lit on fire by funding that shale boom. But when you see all the fallout and the shakeout and the consolidation that happened, society is better off. So it's one of those rare instances where I think Main Street was the beneficiary. Wall Street certainly didn't get hurt too bad with the fees and some of the things that they benefited from on the back of that. But it's particularly interesting where it happens all the time. And as that shakeout starts to settle out a little bit, you start to see things come back. But one of the things that we've talked about consistently now from quarter to quarter to quarter is really this started in March with 
the original fallout. And it's kind of been this domino effect where you think things are going to get quiet and settle down. And then it's just, ooh, this is the next thing to fall. When do you think those ripple effects really start to go away and people will start to feel safe? Is there anything that you think can be a signal for that where you'll know this initial domino that started to fall is over in terms of the sequencing? The explicit answer is no. You can't know. I think that as I think about managing through other crises or cycles, it was like, how ridiculous is your bingo card of can this get worse? As somebody who started off in fixed income and credit investing, your job is to think what could go wrong. You have this list, but then as stuff starts to go wrong, your list starts to be like, what's left? I remember during the ESG boom, when ExxonMobil fell, we had this chart at Fidelity that used to show like components of the S&P and you saw oil grow. And then ExxonMobil, this leader was nothing. I don't know anything about oil like you. I wasn't an oil guy. I was like, I just need to buy ExxonMobil. What more do you guys want? We're not going to have cars. There's just a pain point where you're like, this has gotten to an extreme. And so usually the markets overcorrect on an extreme level. That's so extreme that the theses are like, it's dead, it's over. So that's why people love the Business Week or the Times cover analysis, which is like, stocks are dead, bonds are dead, cryptos, like anything that someone says something is dead, that's a good sign. I'm very concerned. So this is January 6th today. I'm very concerned about January 8th. I'm concerned specifically, this I guess would not be the alpha side of it, but just if you really want to get into the weeds of crypto, that... The Winklevoss twins who own Gemini sent a letter to Barry Silbert and put January 8th in there. And we can get into the weeds or not, but at a high level, Genesis, which was a main trading platform, someone we interviewed actually on the podcast, had lent a lot of money to Three Arrows, a hedge fund that had filed for liquidation and is accused of fraudulently papering documents, lying to all of its lenders. So when that happened, there was some level of legal guarantee or promissory note between DCG, Digital Currency Group, Barry Silbert's holding company, and Genesis, the company he owns. So basically, the parent backstopped a trading firm. Not unreasonable. It's happened before. We've seen it be a way to get through a crisis as like a liquidity gap, and it gives everyone confidence that Genesis was fine. And then game keeps going on. FTX blows up, but now the hole's far too big to potentially save Genesis. So Genesis is in trouble. And they're dealing with their creditors and Gemini, which was one of the lenders to Genesis. Genesis said, we're not going to pay back the money or let it release. So now you've got this weird standoff where you've lent someone money. They're not giving it back. In the simplest forms for people who aren't fixed income or credit geeks, you like negotiate as best you can. You maybe try nice, you try hard, you try lawyers, you try everything. You want to avoid it, but your ultimate bullet, this is what makes capitalism so great. So you don't end up in this deadlock zombie is that either the person who borrowed the money can file for voluntary bankruptcy, or the person who lent the money can push them into bankruptcy through what's called involuntary bankruptcy. So usually when you get to this point, you're like, if you don't do what I say by this date, I'm going to do this thing or I'm going to file. So I'm a bit surprised that no one's pushed Genesis in. It's made me question. I mean, the docs would be awesome, but I haven't seen any of them because they're all private. But the question of how strong that guarantee is for the DCG side because there's lots of ways for people to think about it. One is, if Genesis is put into bankruptcy, that might bring DCG into bankruptcy. If its liabilities are too big, the reason why people are very focused on that, DCG is also the partner of Grayscale. Grayscale runs the GBTC trust, which people have had a lot of exposure or might know about. So there's all these moving parts that are associated with it. We're definitely not done with the headlines. This isn't over yet. 
So my negative side is we're not done. There's still more bodies to fall, unfortunately. And we can't really bottom until that part's been cleared out. So nobody's got the PTSD of worrying for the next shoe to drop. So we're not done there. On the asset side, again, back to the price that we're only down for that quarter. What was Bitcoin ETH down for the fourth quarter? Bitcoin was down about 15% and ETH was down about 10%. So 10 to 15% down. The asset classes themselves and the macro outlook that I feel everyone or the consensus at least is that for risk assets that everyone's looking towards the first half of the year is going to be lousy and the second half of the year is going to be a pivot. Risk assets are going to take off because the old saying, which I guess isn't even true, but the old saying that stock markets bottom before recessions are done, the market discounts in advance. And so the counter thesis to the actual asset class, which is very different because it depends on how you hold the asset class, where you hold the asset class, who it's managed by, that the asset class itself might have a better performance towards the later half of the year. So I think that that will matter too, is a lot. It's like the actual underlying asset classes do well, but people are starting to learn a lot about what documents mean. Not to keep hitting on fixed income, but one of the fun things about stocks is you're kind of promised everything else of a company, but when you lend someone money, it's all what's in the paperwork. And you have this funny thing of having to analyze a company, but also analyze what a comma means on page 254. And if the comma is not there versus if it is there, how a judge might interpret if you actually get your money back. So a really interesting thing just happened in Celsius where the court just determined that the assets could be used to pay the lawyers, which sounds disgusting. Like, oh my God, we're trying to save the people's money. We're just going to pay ourselves. So people are outraged and upset and your influencers saying, not your keys, not your coins, all that stuff. But you got to read the terms of service. They didn't violate the law. When you put money on Celsius, your terms of service said that they own the assets. So it's much more like an actual document of what's happening. Same things happened with Gemini and them having to restate their master loan agreement that the documents really matter. And it's not something that you want to focus on or harp on. It's not definitely not how you can build a business, but that that's actually the underlying thing. So again, I think as a headline, you'll see that this proved crypto is broken. But to me, story as well as time is if you deal with a corporation, there's going to be terms of service and agreements there of what can and can't happen. And usually you don't worry about them. But when something bad happens, you do. Yeah, you're giving me PTSD of evaluating the quality of a guarantee or whatever term might be used in that particular moment. Keepwell deed is still one that comes to mind for offshore companies. And to your point, you don't want to take it to a judge because all of these agreements are so subjective in nature when you actually look at the words. And I think most people assume, well, it's a contract. The contract's very clear. Contracts are anything but clear and increasingly less clear the more that lawyers get involved with them. So there's almost intentionally vague language sometimes. Oh, definitely. I mean, like, go get a credit card. They send you a paper thin, some sort of origami paper mache thing that they fold up and you pull it out and it's like transparently see-through. You think anyone's ever read that before? Size four font. But they have to tell you about it. It doesn't mean anyone's actually read it. And then it's not a problem until it's a problem. So this gets back to like, why do you have documents? Because people are going to view things and a subjective light of who owes what, when, and how things happen. And that's why you have rule of law and you have documents. If anything, I'm really happy that SPF's in, in the United States. I'm always a silver lining person. And I've talked about this with other people that where crypto is such a new asset class, especially as it's been used for more things, lawsuits and bankruptcies, although I wouldn't want to be part of them, I feel bad for the people that are going through it. 
They also lead to precedent of what can and can't be done. And some of this stuff should be tested over ownership rights and property rights. These things that go through the court system, I think we'll learn a lot of how things should be structured in the future. The other thing I would say about documents is every document thing you read, every time I would read it, it just relates to someone else getting away with something before that then they had to add. Anything you've ever read, you can't do this. Well, you can't do this because someone before did it. That's why you can't do it to us. That's a good point. That's why credit agreements went from being probably 10 pages at their origin to now 533 pages, because there's been 533 pages worth of things that have happened that now there need to be loopholes closed. I guess with that in mind, there still could be shakeout. How much does that impact the investment opportunity and everything that comes with it? You zeroed in on Winklevoss twins and Barry. I think there's also a key figure in the market, somewhat grave dancing on SBF and somebody who might have triggered all of that happening, who still stands very outspoken. But what does it mean for those people to be out there and the risks that's associated with any of these other dominoes falling? Do you feel like it would be any worse than what just happened over the past quarter? So Binance is the largest exchange by volume. A lot of people focus on it and worry about what happened and if there were any irregular behavior. There's been a story, I forget where it was. I think it was in the Financial Times or Reuters about like alleged, and SBF had been one of the ones throwing arrows at CZ about potential violations of sanctioned countries. So allowing sanctioned countries to be on platform. Anyone who deals in financial institutions is something that you focus heavily on, anti-money laundering rules. You've got FinCEN, you have all these organizations that say you need to have an effort and a process to try to prevent someone from countries that are sanctioned to move money through the banking system. So that had been a thing that had been out there of like a settlement with the DOJ or negotiating with the DOJ. That's a headline that's out there. And then in general, when you look back at the FTX saga, it sure is a weird outcome that these two who have this intertwined history of starting in the crypto industry and meeting each other and CZ financing FTX as an equity holder and then growing, but then FTX growing really quickly. I mean, this is why it's going to be a made-for-TV drama because it's better than any fake story. Might hit the theaters. It will definitely hit the theaters. That CZ, who owns Binance, and that's the largest exchange, and FTX, which was the fastest growing exchange, were constantly feuding over who was better. And there's a tweet that, this isn't what set it off, but just if you guys want the story, which I think people enjoy, is that basically Sam was getting heat because he was negotiating the Digital Act, like what Congress would try to pass to handle the security tokenization, what can happen, what can't. And when people got wind of a leaked draft, they read it and believed that DeFi would be excluded. It would force everyone to centralize exchanges, which would benefit people like Sam. And he got a lot of heat on Twitter. CZ started to attack him too, of like, now he's down, I'm going to throw jabs. And Sam responded, that's fine. You can go down to Congress and try to help with this and then put a question, are you even allowed in the United States? Which was a huge shot across the bow, alleging you're worried that if you land in the United States, you'll be arrested. There's got to be a bigger word for irony of Sam saying this after what he was doing and at the time knowing. So then CZ announces on Twitter that he's going to sell. So when he as an original investor in FTX, and there's a little bit of a he said, she said with this as well, or he said, he said, that CZ says he asked for his equity back. Sam says they forced him out. But either way, 
when CZ was taken out of the FTX position, he ended up with something roughly like $2 billion, and he was paid an FTT token, the native token on the exchange. And he announced he was going to sell it. Now, this doesn't make any sense from a strategic standpoint, because if you're going to sell something, like never tell people you're going to sell it. You do it quietly and you work it out so you don't shock the market, especially the sake. So he announces it. That causes a drop in the token, which causes a crisis of confidence, which causes a run on FTX. At this point, when this is happening, nobody's yet believes that FTX is a fraud. They just believe it's being attacked. So there's lots of people who think, yeah, they're in trouble. The lightning match wasn't necessarily CZ, even though I think he wants potentially credit, maybe not anymore, but at least might have, was the Coindesk article that this reporter released a balance sheet of what FTX's holdings were. And when I saw it, people freaked out, like, oh my God, FTX doesn't have any money. And I'm like, this isn't the balance sheet. This is an Excel scribble. This is a $30 billion company. So it actually was so preposterous that I think, I'll say myself included, didn't believe it was possible. I'm not an investor. You're a private company. You kind of assume things of size and scope would have happened, but you wouldn't believe like these aren't the financials. That was really the trigger. So when CZ did his tweet, people were like, oh my God, he's taking this FUD piece of information, this half a balance sheet and selling in the open market. Like it seemed like crazy town and it caused a bank run. And so it seemed very nefarious at first and maybe we'll never find out if it was or it wasn't. But anyways, we kind of backtracked a little bit on the beginnings of the takedown. SPF was one of the biggest relayers of this information of putting out there the fear of Binance, the control and who owns it and how many entities do they have and what are they doing? The one thing that is true is that perpetrating a fraud that involves leverage, the one good thing about those is eventually they get taken down because if someone is afraid, the prisoner's dilemma happens and someone asks for their money back. So if you're running a fraud where you've borrowed money, you have to keep borrowing money. And we can imagine funding sources are tight right now for crypto exchanges. So if you can't find a source of capital to replenish whatever risk you had, eventually it kind of works itself out. So it could happen. I mean, I don't know anything. I don't have finances, financials. I don't know how strong of a position they are. But if the most aggressive, crazy allegations were they, they were the same as you know, FTX, eventually that will unwind itself. And it happens when people get scared and want to take their money back, which you were seeing. As this was happening, every exchange was feeling a run on it. And people were trying to figure out what's the right way to kind of show them their money is safe. This gets back to the first question. JP Morgan doesn't have to tell people that their money is safe. It's a belief that their money is safe. They tell a regulator that there's money safe. There's all ports of people examining it. But Lehman told people their money was safe too. And it's even hard after the fact to see how the information was obfuscated away from the people that were closest to it. Once that fear and panic sets in, then that's when you get the run and that's when you get people concerned about it. And so then you have a new area of, okay, what does self-custody look like? How do I protect? I want to own these assets, but how do I own this? What does that mean? Then people realize that once they have self-custody, they don't know how to trade. So this is where you get to the building infrastructure side of people have experienced problems now. So it's a great opportunity for builders to kind of go and figure out how do you solve some of these in a different way? Yeah. Tying it all back to the first question is almost perfect. Anything else that you would add from the fourth quarter or the year as a whole to wrap things up? One thing of interest is that I think everyone has groups, groups of people. You're in different groups. You have like your college fan group and then you have like your work group. And then you've got maybe your political group or your religious group. You've got people you identify with. And I remember when I got into crypto, 
I'm like, why is everyone so angry at each other? Bitcoin hates Ethereum. You're a maxi. You're a lunatic. You're FUD. What is it with it? I don't think I understood how tribal the actual passion was at first at all. I can't appreciate that. But then I started to come up with my own definition of groups. There's an anarchist crypto OG group, which is separate money from state. And Eric Voorhees, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, he did this really excellent interview with SPF. And I came away with it being like, but SPS with Congress, like you have some at the table. I understand your view and your passion. And I think they're awesome because they remind you of the ethos of something that they believe so strongly in the separation. Now, I don't believe that that's realistic or I would place my bets that that will happen without a bloody war of hundreds of years of bloodshed to separate. Like when you separate the church and the state, a lot of people die. Separating money and state, I don't see as fully separation, but maybe you get to a certain level of it. But there's this crypto OG side. And the reason why I even use them as a highlighting factor is that's one community that after this is really rejecting the term Web3. They think that NFTs and crypto and all these things that expanded got them away from their core ethos. So their core ethos is separate money from state. This is about censorship resistant money. Let's get back to it. So that's one category. And that's a category I follow closely. I don't align with, but I find their views extremely interesting because my views are slightly different, that I don't think that leads to mainstream adoption. That's why I follow it, but I don't think that's a path forward. Another path I find interesting is that the brands, big company Starbucks, we did the interview with Starbucks with Adam Bratman. I think it's one of the best ones to listen to. A real company is taking loyalty points, which ironically is in the original Satoshi Nakamoto bootstrapping thing of how he thought this would be used was loyalty points. Really taking that concept and making it happen. I think that the brands, the fear and the sense that this is bad or icky or I don't like it. I think that they see through that in a way of like Nike and Starbucks, some of the most powerful brands in the world understand that this is a digital connection between them and their end client. And this is huge. So I think it's a game changer. And I like that community a lot because it's a lot about what's possible and what could happen. The other group I'm most fascinated in is kind of the original one, which is crypto rails for traditional finance, that it was always a hard thing. But I think modern finance participants see that, that it's superior in a lot of ways. And so I think you'll see a lot of building there. That one's obvious to me, but slow. I have the most confidence in because I understand it the most. That's like how long it's going to take for people to take down the DTC, which is basically how every security in the world gets moved around monopoly. And they start to disrupt that. But my basic thesis on that group is that there's a lot of fees and middlemen between things. If you think about your mortgage, the cost of money, people will say the 10-year treasury and your mortgage are correlated, but they're not the same. The reason why they're not the same is because of all the people in between you and the mortgage mechanism that get you that house. That's interesting to me, that if you could streamline that process, that if you could make it more efficient by removing that friction, you can lower the cost. Both the investors make more money and the borrowers of capital do. So I'm really fascinated in that. The fourth is gaming, which people have all been excited about, but it's been a huge area of resistance from traditional gaming communities, the back and forth of what does this look like? And I think someone will break through there. I just don't know how that will happen. But definitely, I think people are super interested in following the gaming space and the digitization of assets. And again, this is one of those things where the headline is Steam doesn't want NFTs or something. And people are like, oh, it's not going to work. But they don't understand the underlying part of that Apple will charge you 30% of whatever you charge in game, and it can't be more than $100, and you can't actually have any of these economies grow. So you're missing something, that there's game designers that have really amazing ideas that could be unlocked with different primitives. So if those primitives continue to get pushed and played with, 
I think we'll see really interesting things come from that. So I think that the washout time frame, you get rid of a lot of the noise, not a bad thing. You get to actually learn a lot and talk to people who are still truly interested. Because if you're interested now, like before you have tourists, you have speculators, you bought something, you can always sell Bitcoin when it's 60,000, but you can't sell it when it's 16,000 type thing. But the people interested in now are really interested in it. It's more fun. It's more enjoyable. It's like the difference between like reading Twitter and a book or something. More information feels like it's getting into your brain by being part of it now than in the middle of all the craziness. Well, your views are always like a good glass of water to calm things down a little bit. And again, I go back to the word mature in the sense that there's a willingness to understand the nuance and even splitting up those groups. And certain groups can be a lot louder and make you have a certain perception of the asset class as a whole. But I think it's important to point out those other ones as well. Been a fun year. We can only hope that 23 is a little bit more smooth and up and to the right. But I've enjoyed this and look forward to keep doing these. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Thank you very much for doing this, Matt. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 